Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to UK TV's brand new podcast on which we'll be opening an investigation into the worlds of crime fiction and television crime drama. My name's Mark Billingham and on every episode I'll be joined by major figures from crime fiction on the page and on the screen. We're kicking off in fine style because today I'm joined in the studio by Queen of Crime Val McDermid and acclaimed television producer Kate Harwood. We're going to take a look at how female crime fighters have changed over the years and how gender has influenced crime on the page and on the screen. With this in mind, we'll be talking about dramas such as Happy Valley and Scott and Bailey. Sally Wainwright, Amelia Fox and even Charles Dickens get to look in somewhere. We'll also be hearing from award-winning novelist Sarah Hillary and both Val and Kate give us their top picks for what to read and what to watch when it comes to unmissable female sleuthing. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Val McDermid is not called the Queen of Crime for nothing. Only recently she received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival. That's on top of the Diamond Dagger from the CWA, the Gold Dagger, the LA Times Book Award. She's got a trophy cabinet that makes Judy Dench look like a lightweight. And now she's publishing her 30th book. Val, is it still exciting, 30 books on? Oh, yeah. I think it's just I'm just getting into my stride now. <laughs> <laughs> how, many more, how many more to come, then? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it depends how long I live, really. If I, if I live as long as P.D. James, probably another 30-odd. Oh, good. Marvellous. Now... People obviously know you from, from Wire in the Blood, the TV series with Robson Green as Dr Tony Hill that was adapted from your series of books. But there are other series, of course, Lindsay Gordon, Kate Brannigan and Karen Peary. Now, Karen Peary is the main character in your new novel, Out of Bounds. Was that always going to be a Karen Peary book? Yeah, I think as soon as I got the idea for um, for writing about another cold case, it was obviously going to be Karen. But I think uh, when I got to the end of The Skeleton Road, which was the, the last Karen Perry one, um, I, I really thought I didn't want to leave the character there. She's kind of crept up on me. She wasn't meant to be a series character. You know, she, she had a, a cameo role in, in Distant Echo. It was a significant role, but it wasn't a, a lead role. Uh, and then when I wrote The Darker Domain a few years after that, it was a cold case. And essentially, I'm quite lazy. And I figured, <laughs> I've already got a cold case detective. Why bother inventing a new one? So I just used her again for that. But then she kept creeping back into my head with uh, knocks, knocking on the door of my head, going, like, I've got a really good idea for you. Well, one, of the, one of the strands of, uh, of Out of Bounds involves the use of kind of familial DNA, uh, or rather a particular difficulty 
in using that technology, which is something that you have a kind of personal connection with, isn't it? Well, I, I was interested in this because I, it started because I went to a forensics conference a few years ago. I was researching um, a, a, a book about forensics and uh, a session there was, was held by two detectives from Greater Manchester Police talking about how they developed the use of familial DNA, which essentially takes uh, crime scene DNA and applies it to the DNA database and gets a, a, an indirect hit. It's not a straightforward, you did it. It's a, one of your close male relatives did it. Uh, and since then, there's been a lot of cases where it's been quite uh, useful in bringing people to, to trial after 20, 30 years. But I was, I was looking at this and thinking, well, actually, things today are not as straightforward as that. People are adopted. What's about their DNA? People are, are created by donor sperm. What about their DNA familially? So I thought... Something that looks on the face of it to be quite straightforward has the potential to be, for a crime writer, interestingly complicated. Interestingly complicated is what, you know, gets gets readers fired up as well as writers, isn't it? I, I mean, think so. I mean, you know, there's, readership of crime fiction, I think, is very sophisticated. People who read our novels generally read a lot. They're not people who buy one or two books a year to take on their holidays. They're people who often read one, two, three, four books a week. So they really know what we're talking about. So anything that one can, can bring to the table that is not obvious, that is as sophisticated as the readership is, is, is all to the good, I think. So, Kate, one, two, three, four books a week. You got time for that? No, sadly not. <laughs> one, two, three, four scripts a week sometimes. Well, they... um, but quite a lot of books. Actually, my, my head of development uh, is an amazing, this will break your heart, an amazing speed reader of novels. She can come back and go, yes, we should go for this one. Yes, we shouldn't go for that one the following morning. But uh, I, I prefer to take my time. Yeah. Now, as, as controller of series and serials and then head of drama at the BBC, Kate, you oversaw major crime dramas such as Criminal Justice, Waking Dead, Luther and Silent Witness. You're now managing director of the relaunched Euston films, which are called very famous for making iconic shows like Special Branch, Minder, and of course The Sweeney. Uh, you must have been well aware of that kind of reputation that, that Euston Films had oh, when you absolutely. took this on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. When I, because Euston Films is actually owned by a bigger company, owned by Fremantle, and uh, when I went in, they said, you know, we could, you know, start up a new label with you, or you could have Euston Films, and I thought that's like being handed the crown jewels, and. Um, it, it's wonderful because it means you walk into to meeting rooms with, with agents and some of the older ones get a little bit misty-eyed because you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they started there or something. But it's a great calling card. And I think in a way it's trying to capture that, that essence of Houston films, which is sort of intelligent mainstream, has kind of pushed us into a lot of different areas. And, and, and of course, as you say, a lot of crime drama. Is it, is it that thing where you, you mentioned the phrase Houston films and... And tired old men of a certain age start doing John Thor impressions and going, we're the Sweeney and we haven't had our breakfast. Nobody can do John Thor impressions. Nobody can do I have to say, watching the Sweeney recently, which I have been watching it again, is, you know, that man is extraordinary. The way yeah. he dominates the small screen. There's no other actor like him or very few other actors like him. Well, to him. have created, created three yeah. iconic yeah. Crime leads, yeah. you know, Regan, uh, Kavanaugh, and Morse is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, he, his it. performance just hasn't dated in the slightest. So, it's you wonderful. may not be able to give too much away here, I don't know, but kind of what have you got in the pipeline then? Well, I can, the I can front? talk, you know, I can absolutely talk about um, uh, things that I'm <laughs> confident about. We, we have the rights to Tana French novels, um, and uh, which is really thrilling, um, and we're starting the process of scripting on the first uh, pair. Um, and we also um, have a programme commission, which is Hard Sun by Neil Cross, who is the creator and writer of Luther. So this is Neil's first big original for British television since Luther. Um, and we'll start shooting that in January. 
so soon. Anytime soon. Soon, soon. coming soon. <laughs> Already, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> now, the typical male crime lead we're just talking about you know john thor embodies what's almost a kind of cowboy fantasy the rugged individual hero he's a he's a philip marlowe type with a fedora and a femme fatale or more recently he's a damaged alcoholic who can't escape a dark past and who probably listens to music of one sort or another when it comes to female lead characters do you think there are equivalent archetypes val well i think uh when you have a successful creation you get copies of that. So Miss Marple from Agatha Christie spawned a whole subgenre of little old lady sleuths. Um, and and so whenever you have someone who breaks through with a successful sort of figure, people follow that and so it becomes a kind of trope. So, you know, when, when the, the new wave of feminist crime fiction broke on these shores with people like Sarah Paretsky and Sue Grafton, Marsha Muller, Barbara Wilson, that created a new kind of female detective and, of course, people jumped on that bandwagon. So by this point, it, that has also become a kind of cliché. And, I mean, there, there have been a lot of articles recently, and The Independent recently suggested that we're in the middle of a golden age of female crime. Uh, I mean, is that the case in terms of writers and character, or is it something that's always been there? I think it's always been there. I think the media are always looking for, a, a, again, for a bandwagon to jump on, a trend to, to beat to death with a stick. Um, <laughs> and, and I think if you actually look at the history of the genre, uh, women have always been right at the heart of the crime novel. You know, from the early days, it was the four queens of crime, Christy Sayers, Allingham Marsh, went on to writers like Josephine Tay, to writers like Patricia Highsmith, and then moved moved into writers of the, of the calibre of, of P.D. James and Ruth Rendell in this country. There's always been women writing strongly at the heart of crime fiction, but not just at the, the big names at the top. Women have always been sitting there throughout the levels of the genre, producing really good work. Yeah, there's this big thing at the moment about domestic noir and these sort of psychological novels, as if writers like Patricia Highsmith and Bruce Rendell well, were not yeah. doing that. I mean, um, um, Sarah Weinman, the, the American critic, has just edited a collection of, of eight novels of suspense written in the 40s and the 50s in America, and these are exactly that. They are domestic suspense novels, and they're powerful and they're, they're as exciting now as they probably were when they were first published. But it's that successive wave breaks on the shore and, and people forget all but the great monuments in the landscape of what's gone before. I mean, we keep reinventing the genre, but much of the reinvention has its roots in, in, in the past. I think it's... I think on telly there has been a, a complete breakout of, of women detectives that um, probably in this country dates back to Jane Tennyson almost almost certainly. Obviously, Miss Marple was there uh, long long before that. Um, but the, the and, and I think what's shifted a bit from those early days of Prime Suspect is that you know there seemed to be an unwritten law that if you had a woman detective, she had to be packed around by men. So her gender became the absolute issue of the of, of the of the show. I think people are more relaxed about that. Writers more relaxed about that now. And quite often the women detectives uh, work you know in pairs. And God you know good heavens, they even might have a woman boss. Um, and I think that's been a great, a great change. I think another trope that I've certainly seen on telly is the kind of hyper flawed female detective, right. the one with the, you know, and somehow the evolution of the detective into prime victim is, is another is another clearly kind of recognisable trope on telly. I well, think. Well, yeah. I think television is more conservative generally than than the written book because in, in a book you can afford to be much more experimental. Mm. I mean, I can remember um, in the 1990s when I was writing my Kate Brannigan novels, Private Eye, set in Manchester. I remember us pitching them to uh, head of drama. Uh, at a channel 
And he went, we've already done a woman private eye scene. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like, that's it. Yeah. I mean, we, we've done one. That's it. Done one. And that's that. I mean, uh, it's, it's exactly uh, that. We've done that, and therefore we've covered that ground. Yeah. Never mind that everywhere you looked, there were te- teleseries with male cops running it. But we've done a woman doing that, so we don't need to do any more. We've covered that. It does change. It you know, has I, changed. It, do, it has changed quite a lot. And I, but I also think you look at the difference. The two shows you mentioned that I oversaw was Waking the Dead and Silent Witness. And... I think, uh, you know, and Lu- and Luther as well. But if you just look at the sort of difference between um, Trevor Eve's character, Boyd, uh, on Waking the Dead and, you know, Amanda Burton and Millie Fox on, on Silent Witness, you've, you've got a very different approach to crime. And sometimes if we go too far, for example, in violence in Silent Witness, everybody got a bit panicked, even though it was far less violent than perhaps on Waking the Dead. But then Waking the Dead, there was the expectation that big macho Trevor would kick the door down and chuck the suspect around the cell a bit and bash him up. Whereas, you know, the slip of a girl like Millie Fox has got to sort of be cleverer, a little bit more cautious, um, and sometimes puts herself in the firing line. And I, I sort of recognise those two things that used to slightly obsess me when people were talking about violence on telly um, and, and recognise that things were acceptable in one and unacceptable in the other. Um, and I see that, you know, some of the things I observed then in, in other shows now. Well, I, but I, think I, d- that, I think that very point actually makes women at the heart of a crime drama or a crime novel mm. more interesting mm. because women traditionally can't go and, and punch somebody's lights out. They have to find a more uh, roundabout way of doing things and I think that inevitably leads to more interesting storytelling. It's much more interesting to have somebody figure out how to get round a difficult situation than just to punch somebody. Yes, I always used to worry when Millie Fox went back to her flat. I was like, oh no, this is a disaster. <laughs> Don't do that, home. Millie. <laughs> I do want to talk a bit about, a bit about violence, though, and, and about victims. Uh, the American crime writer Laura Lippmann said, um, thinking about crime is very personal for women because I know what it's like to be prey. I know I've heard you talk about this many times, Val, this idea that uh, because of women's experience, especially growing up, they write about violence differently from men. I think that is the case. I mean, I hate to generalise because as soon as you make a generalisation, you immediately think of five exceptions. But in in general terms, I think women do approach writing about violence differently. And it is precisely because as we grow up, we're told to be afraid of the world. We're told that there are dangers out there. We're told that, that not to go down a dark street on our own at midnight, not to do this, not to do that, because the idea is firmly fixed in our head that bad things will happen to us. I don't think there's a woman in this country who hasn't walked down a street after dark and heard footsteps behind her and immediately flashed forward to all the terrible things that are about to happen Mm. to her. Men move in the world in a different way. They don't experience the world in that same way. They're not taught to think of themselves as potential victims. So when we come to, to write a scene of violence, we see it from the point of view of the victim, of the prey, of the person who is the target. And so we approach it, I think, with that genuine visceral sense of fear. And that's how we write it. So when when you read it back, you get that sense of fear, you get that sense of incipient panic. And most men don't see violence like that way. They see it as a spectator. Right. They see it as something they're watching. You are one of the examples that, is, that proves the rule. Because you do write about violence in a very different way. And I think that's because I know that you have experienced violence at first hand. And I think that's given you the insight into fear. So you are one of the, the rare guys who write about it with that very felt experiential sense of dread. Well, it, given, given that, uh, again, it's generalisation, but, but most crime on television and in books, are, it's consumed by, by women, mm. mostly. Um, and that there are a lot of women being, you know, being portrayed as victims in these books and in these TV shows. 
why do women like to read about and to watch women I, I in danger? Think it's funny, we did a lot of research actually, probably about probably quite out of date now, but about five years ago, and you know, found that most people watching crime drama were very unconcerned by violence. It was really interesting. It was we thought there'd be more I mean, of course there's fuss out there and people write about it and there are complaints and you can cross the line. All of those things are obvious. But actually pe- and I think it's that idea that it's a, a forum to explore one's fears and it's a little it's it's a kind of a world you can peer into, but then you can turn it off and go to bed and feel that someone sorted it out whether it's you know Boyd or, or John Luther or whoever someone's actually sorted it out and it's sort of cleansing um, I often used to say you know um, there's quite a lot of violence against men on telly we tend to call it fighting you know mm. it, it's it's, yes. it's more evenly matched what you don't get is the vulnerability of the victim and you know and that's why children also obviously come up a lot as victims in crime less on telly because it kind of crosses a line that people find really hard to over, you know they over empathize basically and I think you know that it's interesting what you say about the women writers but of course an awful lot of the women detectives are talking about are written by men not all of them are written by women and I think you know that there is a difference between women as victim um, in amongst other victims or whatever and the, the presentation of women in crime drama only as the body on the slab um, and I think that's where you know we have moved on a bit from that and those kind of dramas that only look at the woman as the body on the slab feel very old-fashioned now. So do you, do you sort of broadly reject the idea that violence against women is too prevalent and gratuitous, especially in, in, in television crime drama. Uh, I do, actually. Fall, and I think, did the fall come under your No, bailiwick? it wasn't. That was an independent. But I think, it's, I think Sally Wainwright is really, really interesting on that because, you know, when you look at Happy Valley, which I think is a masterpiece, I Absolute really do. I mean, quite do. extraordinary, both series. And, you know, and of course, she, let's not forget, she created Scott and Bailey as well, you know. Um, but what she, she didn't flinch from violence. She didn't dwell on Scott and Bailey. We famously didn't often actually spend that much time looking at the victims. Um, but in, in Happy Valley, the violence was savage. It was utterly savage, but it had context and it had subtext and it had, um, you know, it had consequence. So the victims were more than personalised. They were, you know, one always remembers the running over that policewoman in the mm. end of episode two, which actually was incredibly painful. Not because one saw anything, but because it was so personal and because you knew what the repercussions were going to be for Catherine, you know, that it was this woman she'd sort of slightly dared into go and take a bit more action. And, you know, but that level of complexity, you know, there's not there's not that much um, out there at that level. Um, and dare I say it, I mean, the, in in the real world, if you like, the, if you like the, the interesting murders, the ones that are not instantly solvable, the ones that are are, are perhaps you know um, the work of, of a psychopath or a serial killer or somebody with complicated motives, tend to be uh, crimes against women. When mm. men get murdered, it tends to be they've got drunk and they've got into a fight. Um, that it tends to be that kind of thing that's just got out of or hand. Or it's gang related, or, or it's gang related, yeah. or it's yeah. drugs related. There's plenty or of male victims out there. Yeah. 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 Whereas, you know, I, I mean, I, I hate to, I hate to sort of say this as if it's in any way light-hearted or frivolous, but the, the sort of the interesting murders, if you like, tend to be against against women. Mm. I think my my um, ben, the person who was the commissioner of drama alongside me always used to say, everybody likes a nice a nice jolly serial killer. A nice jolly you serial know? killer. Well, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned the fall only because it's unlikely to happen to us. It was, it was I think one of those shows that yeah, came yeah. in for a great deal. Of, I mean, it, was, it was a show I thought was absolutely wonderful. I have to say. Uh, largely because the Daily Mail said it was the most evil programme ever made, uh, which is a fantastic uh, accolade for almost any show. But I think one of the things it did was to present a serial killer who was attractive, who was, dare I say it, sexy, who was, you know, didn't he work for, he worked for... um, 
who got very big, a, a like a great crisis counselor. Yeah, because yeah. 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 it didn't say here's a monster. You know, it was based we, on Ted Bundy, the idea of Ted Bundy. Yeah, and I thought it was, I thought it was interesting, and I thought the, the thing that um, that saved it, I suppose, from being um, too glib almost was that it was clearly a very stylized drama. It was presented mm. in a very stylized way. It clearly wasn't meant to be a slice of gritty realism. Because it of wore the its thesis, it didn't it? I mean, yeah. she wore the thesis with her silk yeah. shirts, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think it would have been unwatchable if you hadn't had a woman on the other side, mm -hmm. actually. I think it would have been really hard. Particularly in quite... A, it was interesting when I say about women in a man's world. That re revived the woman in the man's world, although there were the young mm -hmm. uh, policewoman as well. But, you know, she she came over from, from London into, in, into, you know, uh, into Belfast where there were other things going on and, you know, with her silk shirts. And she sort of portrayed a kind of uber-femininity and yet sort of behaved like a man. And it was a kind of counterweight, I think, to what was happening. And allowed, mm -hmm. as you say, allowed the thesis to be kind of visible. We will, yeah. we will come back to this thesis. Uh, <laughs> but before then, we have a regular feature in which a stab in the dark's roving reporter catches up with some of those who bring us the very best crime fiction. Today we hear what happened when our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, went to meet best-selling author Sarah Hillary to talk about her character, Marnie Rome. I'm here in a North London pub, ahead of Sarah Hillary's appearance at the monthly First Monday Crime event. And as you can probably hear around me, there are people clinking their glasses and about to dig into their sausage and mash. And while I'm waiting for Sarah, I'll let you into a little secret. I'm not a fan of the term strong female character. Now I get it, and I love the fact there are so many multi-layered female characters in crime fiction and on our screens that redress the balance, but to me, using the term strong female character suggests that women are an exception to the rule. So where does Sarah's Marnie Rome fit into all this? I didn't sit down and come up with Marnie and with a sort of list of things that I wanted uh, my female detective to be. She walked into another story, an earlier story that I was writing, um, I think if I'd sat down with a, a tick list of, you know, empathy, compassion, courage, uh, it wouldn't have worked. But because she sort of walked on fully formed, it was a great starting point. So obviously, when I came to then write, realised that I was writing a series focused around Marnie, and then I just decided she was keeping a lot of secrets from everybody, including me. So no whiskey-drinking, cigar-chewing misanthropes, then? There's nothing... Um, worse than a haunted detective that can, can function so insufficiently that at the end of the day they go back to their lonely caravan on the beach that you know that they must never have a relationship with anyone because they're so broken and damaged and that's not and that to me isn't courage cutting yourself off from from the world and going and living in a box at the end of the day because you are you know, only your demons can understand you that's not brave to me that's the opposite of bravery. I think what, what I was really concerned to do with Marnie was to show that actually what courage is to me is failing and trying again, falling and getting back up. I think that's the thing that, that, that makes Marnie brave and real. She lives in the real world. She, isn't, she doesn't want to go and hide. She helps other people, that's, you know, which is difficult, I think, for her to do. Well, she's understanding now that she has this empathy for victims for the specific reason that you know she she was one or is one herself so is it fair to call marnie a strong female character or is this term a cliche that should be thrown out straight away it was interesting i did a panel a few years ago and uh, not that long ago at, at, um, at one of the crime festivals um and we were talking about exactly this it was about women in a, in a men's world and 
a couple of the chaps on um, on the panel talked about their, their strong female characters. It was very interesting, very really interesting to me to see the the things that they they um, laid out as being strong. So they were um, unafraid to go out after dark, for instance. Sexually quite voracious, they would, they would make the first move. They would behave a bit like James Bond behaves, because why shouldn't they? What seemed to me to come out of uh, out of that was this idea that a, the, the 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 man's version of a strong woman was she was very accessible to men, whereas the women that I spoke with that were talking about their strong female characters, it was all about their the layers and the and the mystery and the things that go on, the, the internal monologues and the, and the secret line, and the, the difference, the way that they can juggle being a mother, being a, 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 a policewoman, being, um, being, being a daughter, being all of these different roles. It's the multitasking, it's also the, the way you compartmentalise your emotional and social and professional lives. Um, and, and what it struck me at the end of all of that was that the, the woman's idea of a, of a strong woman was somebody who was actually quite inaccessible. And that's quite, in one way, it's quite a crude thing to say. I mean, not all men would think that that's what equals a strong woman, and not all, certainly not all women would believe that that's what makes a strong woman. But it was interesting to me that there was this idea that, you know, a strong woman would, for a man would be somebody that, that would be more understandable and, and relatable. And um, the women, certainly the women I spoke to, were saying, no, we're, we're further away. We're, you, you do not know us. We are less accessible. And that, that, I thought, was a really, really interesting distinction. So, food for thought and a fresh take on the debate from Sarah Hillary. If you want to check out Sarah's third Marnie Rome story, Taste Like Fear, it's out now on Headline. It's interesting in that piece that Sarah talks about how men and women have a different view of what a strong mm. female character is, which is somehow down to their accessibility. Do you agree with that? I think so to some degree. I think there's a, there's a sense somehow that, that strength is embodied in, in being a lonely person who can stand on your own two feet. I've always seen it slightly differently. I think strength lies in knowing when to, to draw on your friendships, when to, when to admit that you are not completely self-sufficient. And I think that's the hallmark of a lot of female characters in crime fiction on the page and on the screen. You see it with things like Scott and Bailey. People have relationships. Um, and when I was creating Kate Brannigan in the 1990s, I one of the things that I made a very conscious decision about was to reflect the sort of relationships that I have with other women that, that my friends have. We have a nexus of friends who we draw on for emotional support, but also for practical support. You know, if I need to know something about the law, I call one of my friends who's a lawyer. Um, or, you know, if I need to know something about forensics, I, I'll, I'll go out for a drink with one of the forensic scientists that I know. It's very much a case of using those those social networks as part of the thing that keeps your feet on the ground. And I think that's one of the key differences between the idea of the male maverick who goes home on his own <laughs> to his flat and sits and drinks himself insensible in his armchair and the woman who will go out for a pizza with her pals and moan. <laughs> yeah, that, which you get a lot. In, you, that, you get that, that sort of stuff in Happy Valley very much, oh, that yeah. kind of female friendships. I mean, the, the, the difference in the portrayal, I think, of, of some of these female characters is, is interesting. The, the US adaptation of the, of the Tess Gerritz and Rizzolian Isles novels is now in its seventh season on Alibi and they're very different characters from like the killing Sarah Lund or Catherine Kaywood in Happy Valley or Stella Gibson in The Fall. Do you think that that's the nature of US network TV versus UK TV or is it 
a difference between characters who were created specifically for the screen or adapted from a novel? I think the most recently, um, uh, you know, everything that, that Val was saying about, about the, the friendship groups and things, that feels fresh and modern. That feels like... Um, line has been crossed in an interesting way you know we have moved on a bit Stockton Bailey you mentioned but also Ellie um, Olivia Coleman's character in Broadchurch she's very much a part of that community that she's investigating Um, and uh, you know and I think that you know there are plenty of lone wolf women uh, you know, detectives. If you think Jane Tennyson was absolutely that, so was so was Amanda Burton. You know, in the early days of Silent Witness. But um, I do think that that the more layered, the more nuanced writers place those those women now in a kind of broader and richer community. Um, because otherwise, you're you're just you know you're just you're losing some of the benefits of having a female detective. They do all turn into modesty blaze, a bit kick-ass heroines. Um, well. It, to talk yeah. about kick-ass heroines, I, I was really interested to read this article in the, in the Atlantic a couple of days ago where I discovered something I absolutely didn't know, which was that in the early days of cinema, back in the, in the very early 20th century, all the action heroes were not heroes but were heroines. They were all, they, they had these long-running series called things like The Perils of Pauline, The Hazards of Helen, um, <laughs> where it was women who were jumping off trains and being chased by, you know, chasing spies and having all that stuff. And that only changed with, with the First World War when oh, it all became about men and a different kind of heroism and, and, and those kind of films got pushed into the background. But there were hundreds and hundreds of them. They were massively popular. The female action character is is not something that's sort of come back into fashion Emma at all, Peel. has it? Emma yes. Peel, but, yeah. but then yes. again, she was a kind of sidekick to... Well, I think they are a little bit titillating, aren't they? Emma Peel with her, her leather trousers. Absolutely. I can't think why. Um, and, you know, but also uh, Modesty Blaze, who I absolutely adore, actually. But, you know, that there is something about the balletic, athletic girl. And Honor Blackman before Honor Emma Peel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I think has made all the characters Jessica we've... Jones in contemporary. Jessica Jones, yeah. Um, well, yeah, but then you start when, and you start to become superheroes. Yeah, stuff. But I, I think one of the things that that all the characters we've been talking about that we really like, Catherine Kaywood and and Sarah Lund and and Stella Gibson uh, and and the Oliver Coleman character in Broadchurch, they're all astonishingly good performances. I think that's you know obviously the writing is fantastic, but they've all been brilliantly played. Um, and and is that really the key to to making these characters so compelling i mean how important is casting talk to both of you about that but val as someone who's had your work adapted for tv how difficult is it to see your characters portrayed by actors i think you have to trust the people that you're working with um we had several companies approach us before we we went with coastal productions on wire and the blood uh, and they just for one reason or another i didn't want to work with them because I felt they didn't get what I was trying to do or they didn't get the characters. Even before that, I remember um, one television company coming to us wanting to adapt Kate Brannigan and uh, the, the producer sitting there saying, well, the thing about Kate Brannigan is she's got balls. <laughs> That's go, the thing that she mm, does. No. I think maybe we're not going to work together here. But with, with, um, when I sat down with Coastal, it, you know, it's, it's, it's Robson and his, his business partner, so I knew Robson Green was going to be Tony Hill if I said yes to them. And we spent a lot of time talking about the books, and it was clear that they really loved the books and they really got the books. And I thought, I'm in safe hands here. And actually it was helped by the fact that Robson physically looks very like the Tony Hill in my head. So that wasn't too big of a jump. So now when I'm actually writing the character of Tony Hill, I see Robson and that casting turned out to be brilliant for us. I think he did a great job. But interestingly, Hermione Norris, who played Carol Jordan and also did a great job, is not the Carol in my head. 
So it's still right. in my head. I see my Carol. I don't see Hermione when I'm thinking about Tony and Carol. I see Robson, but not Hermione. Even and the readers the, probably now see yes, Hermione. Yes, they do. And other characters in the book um, that that were on screen are not my physical characters in my head. So in, in, in that sense, they've not been affected by what was on the screen. But I think, I said, I think the key is to work with people that you trust with your work. Um, and, you know, people get seduced by the glamour of television and they get, you know, seduced by maybe a wad of cash being waved in front of them. It's <laughs> not that big. A wad? It's, really, <laughs> a wad? It's, it's a very small wad <laughs> yes. of cash in reality. People yeah. think when you've had something on the telly, that's it. You that's, can yeah, retire to the yacht. south of France and buy a yacht. <laughs> yeah. but actually, it's not that much money. Um, but, but people think that, that that's what it's about. It's not. What it's about is actually drawing people to your books. And so if you want to draw people to your books, you have to make sure that you're working with people that you trust to make good television. And as you say, having somebody really charismatic in that central role makes a huge difference. Well, of course, in, in telly, quite often we're talking about scripts that are created solely for television. So, yes. um, you know, when Neil was writing Luther, uh, Idris was actually cast quite early on, actually. I mean, Luther had been in Neil's head for some time. So very quickly you get a kind of symbiosis between writer and, and actor. Now, we're not cast yet in, in the show that we're doing together. And at the moment, the lead characters are owned, very much owned by Neil, but there will come a point willing that we actually find the right actors and then you know there will be subtle shifts and you can't imagine waking dead you can't imagine boyd uh, not being trevor eve you can't imagine a kind of a different iteration of boyd and i know that the richness of 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 catherine carwood and sarah lancashire's performance is is drawn from the the richness of the relationship between sally wainwright and sarah lancashire you know they've worked together many times they've you know they've been together doing um uh, last Tango in Halifax. So that was written for Sarah. And, you know, so it's a lot, when you know an actor, I think every writer would say you can do so much more. It's not just what you write in, it's also what you leave out, what you allow them to do. And some of Sarah's great, you know, strengths are those moments when you just watch her face and you absolutely get it all. You know? But how aware of you, if you are, how aware are you if you're casting? Uh, a TV show that is an adaptation yeah. of a novel or or a series of novels. I mean, obviously, you have that screenplay, which is very rarely written by the, the novelist. So you have a completely different screenplay, but then you do come to casting that central character or characters. Obviously, that's hugely important for anything you're doing. But, I mean, when it's a character who possibly ha already has a large fan base through novels, it, does it become even harder? I think it, I think it does because, you've, you know, you've got to... You've got to please the readers mm. and the reader fans and the novelist, and some of them a little bit more picky than others. Um, and, uh, and name and, names, <laughs> name names. Picky. When we finish recording, when we finish and recording. some and some, you know, and some are really open to that. You know, I mean, I worked on on Quirk with with John Banville, um, and you know, there's no Gabriel Byrne is not Quirkers in the book at all. Um, but I did say to John, who was very who was very relaxed about what we did with with the books, I did say, yeah, but you have got him taking his clothes off a lot and having sex with a lot of people. And I'm just sort of thinking that maybe the audience wouldn't mind watching Gabriel. Also, of course, Gabriel's a film star. He's, <laughs> he's also a film star. And that, exactly. that, that kind of but, does tend to help. But, you know, and, and in fact, sometimes <clears throat> writers realise they're onto a good thing um, with, with, a, with a superb television adaptation. And I think if you read Colin Dexter's novels, oh, if you read the early, Dex, the early Morse novels before John Thaw, Morse is a subtly different character, and sometimes not subtly different, but 
he changes in the course of the series of books to match John Thaw. He's rather uh, an unpleasant character, actually, in the early Morse novels. And of course, Lewis in the early in the early Morse novels is Welsh and, and, older, and, and older and older <laughs> than Morse. Yes, absolutely. Yes, to do the spin-off series. Then. No, no, no. <laughs> and and Mrs. He goes, he, uh, Mrs. Lewis makes him chips. Yeah, but of course, <laughs> remember. But of course, the people in, behind the in the glamorous world of television, as Val has described it, <laughs> are the ones who don't get the angry letters. Mm. When when fans of the books don't like the casting, it's the writers that get the emails going. How could you? How could you let X play that character? And you, and you just have to kind of shrug. Oh, I don't go, know. There used to be a famous old BBC duty log where we used to get quite a lot of. Uh, oh, really? I don't know. Uh, um, I think that's sort of gone online now. But yeah, you do get you do get that. What well, back in the days when people would ring up, ring up, they and they get they, they <laughs> used to get it transcribed. Yeah, and it, you know you do trample on people's dreams. But I mean, it is interesting. Sometimes I always say, look at. If you look at Oliver Twist, Nancy in Oliver Twist is, I think, she's she's quite old, she's she's rather fat, she's got no teeth, she's she's never the Nancy who's in every version of Oliver. And somehow it's partly, I think, that, that it's more, you know, Bill and Nancy is more romantic, uh, you know, an idea that it's when it gets dramatised. It's also sometimes, you know, I think the... the, the the dramatist wants to kind of delve into the subtext of those characters in a way that the writer perhaps hasn't perhaps seen what they've released you know and actually I think in our head when you go back to Oliver Twist Nancy is that sort of lost yearning soul and you kind of want to romanticize her and I think there is sometimes that we do sometimes scrub them up a bit I, I, now, I'm now imagining a conversation with Charles Dickens where he's going but you don't understand she's a prostitute <laughs> and somebody's going yes but look at this as long as he needs me have you heard that melody okay fine we'll leave it at that I see it's Charlie Wallace yeah. <laughs> now as we gallop towards the uh, the end of the to the show uh, as promised uh, in every episode we're going to ask our guests to bring their recommendations for a good read and a good watch so who wants to go first Val what what book are you recommending kind of in line with the theme we've been we've been developing this week given what we've been talking about uh, and, and the nature of female detectives. I would say if you really want to, to understand the, the modern female detective uh, and, and her role in the world, you need to go back to Sarah Paretsky um, and the first V.I. Wachowski novel, Indemnity Only, which was actually the, the book that, that jump-started me into writing crime fiction instead of thinking about writing crime fiction, because that, I think, takes the female detective into the modern world. Right. And a TV show? Well, it'd be a toss-up for me between Scott and Bailey and Happy Valley. I think yeah. they're both extraordinary pieces of work. Um, I think Scott and Bailey is quite different from anything that had gone before. You've got two cops, you have their bosses as a woman. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about Scott and Bailey is the interview techniques. We've gone are the browbeating of suspects, gone are the sort of backing people into corners. This is the slow teasing out of information from people. It's conversation rather than, than, than having them up against the wall. And I think it's, it should have transformed the viewer's understanding of what a police interrogation actually is in, in the real world now. You'd never have had that in a Sweeney. Kate, <laughs> what are your recommendations? Yeah, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we, we are adapting the works of Tana French. I, I, I would love to, to draw more British uh, readers to Tana French. She's hugely popular in America, hugely popular in Germany. Um, her, I have been lucky enough to read her, her new book, her upcoming book, The Trespasser, so I would certainly urge that. That has a... Um, Tana, Tana's books um, are often led by, and this is another big 
kind of crime trope, of course, by unreliable narrators, um, which become fiendishly difficult to, to transpose to television sometimes. Um, but what Tana does so cleverly is there's always another detective in the mix who can question, who can draw out, who can comment on the truth. Uh, in The Trespasser, um, Antoinette, this, this uh, black detective in the Dublin Murder Squad, um, is, is fighting uh, to, to uncover a murder, but is also fighting with a sense of her own um, that she's being bullied, that, that that people aren't taking her seriously, and that you know that that kind of starts gradually to cloud her judgment in a rather wonderful way. I'd also mention a more upcoming young woman novelist called Emma Kavanagh, um, whose new book, The Missing Hours, I've I've just read, which is a really finely controlled narrative and 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 plotting, really, really, really gripping. Um, and as for television, um, I watched recently um, for for. I watched the first series of Broadchurch again and was struck by how very, very good it is. And I know that's not a fresh and original thing to say. The other thing I would say is, although, you know, the character of, of Ellie Miller is so fresh and original. Um, but I'd also say Lindsay Denton across series two and three um, of Line of Duty. Um, as you watch this woman who you start off thinking is pure evil and by the end you love her <laughs> and you care about her and you don't want her to be shot in the head. <laughs> you really don't. No, you really don't. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful creation by, by um, Jeb Mercurio and Keely Horse. Right, that's about it for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. I think we've learned that women are probably a little bit more complicated than some men think when they write about them. You can find out more about A Stab in the Dark, along with articles and some great book competitions, at uktv.co.uk slash dark. I do like that slash. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at hashtag dark. Plus, don't forget to review us on your podcast app, unless you didn't like it, in which case, please don't bother. So with that, it's a huge thank you to my guest, Kate Harwood. Look out for Hard Sun coming to your BBC sometime soon. And to Val McDermott, whose new novel, Out of Bounds, is published right now by Little Brown. My name's Mark Billingham. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.